You Jackson? You look like a Jackson. That will make you Frank Dukes. No, no, no. It's Dukes. Gotcha. Like put up your Dukes, right? Wellity, wellity, wellity. <laughs> I don't know how to introduce a special episode because we say the same thing every bloody week. But this is a very special episode. It's yeah. the Frank Dukes, no, no, what do we call it? In conversation with Frank Dukes. Oh, like put up your Dukes, right? Yeah. No, no, it's Dukes. <laughs> so this has been a long time coming, obviously. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. This is this is one milestone on the path of yeah. Campaign 2000. Mm-hmm. Uh, we spoke to Frank just before Christmas last year. We're officially journalists. We're now. officially investigative journalists. Yes. Now, uh, pop culture historians and martial arts historians, I suppose. Yeah. Um, <laughs> now, <laughs> we're going to play the interview in a second, but um, we thought we'd intro it because it kind of gets straight into it. And uh, it was an interesting experience, wouldn't you say, Greg? It was. Would you say yeah. it was eye opening? Eye opening. Um, I was called a stoot. He did call you a stoot. He, he did not call me a stoot. He didn't, no, he didn't. Um, <laughs> but that's fair. That's, that's fairly accurate. That's very astute of him. Yeah, it was astute of him. <laughs> Touche. Uh, so we're going to put that on the soundboard at some point, I'm sure. I've since uh, done my research and found the interview between him and uh, when Michael Chavello interviewed Frank Dukes and he called Chavello also very astute. Mm. So you've got that in common with the voice. Yeah, I've got that in common. And probably, or, probably or he just says others. it to everyone. <laughs> yeah. Well, as I say, didn't say it to me. Maybe one, you get one per interview and you got it. You got like a George Costanza thing. Like, I didn't get an astute. <laughs> oh, I got an astute. What am I, obtuse? Is that the opposite of astute? It's the opposite of acute. Are you talking yeah. about triangles now? I think I've gone off topic here. Okay, back on topic. So uh, just before we get into it, I wanted to kind of set the context here. The way we've treated this interview, saying some kind of gotcha journalism, um, we know there's a lot out there that questions some of the validity of some of Frank's claims, but the reality is the story he tells is the story that inspired Bloodsport. Bloodsport went on to inspire a ton of martial artists and in part went on to inspire things like Mortal Kombat and UFC. So his impact on pop culture is undeniable, whether you're a believer or not. So that's how we approached the interview. We wanted to hear what this mythical figure had to say about martial arts and movies and working with JCVD. So with that... Let's get into it. Let's start the show. Yeah, we thought we'd just kind of go through all the stages, uh, you know, of your life that we sure. sort of maybe a bit, a bit about the early days and then, you know, I guess we're kind of interested particularly in some of the movie stuff yeah, um, and any of your experiences there, but we'll just, I guess we'd be keen to sort of know from the beginning how you, you know, how you got into martial arts and some of the, some of those early memories, if, if you could. Sure. Um, I, I basically, it's rather interesting. I grew up in a very interesting time and era. Um, I was born, you know, dis- disabled. I was, a, I was born with dirt birth defects with my, my feet were implanted inward and I still have very fond memories of uh, getting out of my bed at night trying to go to the bathroom because they put me in a iron shoe that bent your legs out to try to force them All right. to be normal as you grew, you know, you as a child. Yeah. And, and, it was, and so it was from a very young age. And I, I, I would often crawl and fall down the stairs because <laughs> I try to, I try to walk. I was yeah. in the second story. And, um, I, I guess I learned from that age, you know, no matter what happened, you know, you just, just to endure, just to move forward. Yeah. And I carried that attitude, you know, with me uh, throughout the rest of my life. And then when I wanted to do sports, I was probably one of the best athletes in my school. And unfortunately, I couldn't pay for cleats. I couldn't pay for the deposit for the football helmet or the leagues, you know, soft, yeah. even the little leagues had these fees you had to pay. Yeah. I mean, we just, we, we could barely have money to eat, you know, there was just never a spare dime. Yeah. Right. And so I, you know, I started, you know, I was enamored with trying to figure out what to do. And then I, as I grew up, I'd watch the wild, wild west and you'd have Jane, you know, Robert Conrad doing 
some martial arts on TV, and you, you had uh, there was a very uh, influential film for me called um, uh, was with J- James Cagney, and it was uh, Empire Under the Sun or something like that, and they had martial arts in it, some judo yeah. and jiu-jitsu. Yeah, sure. And the James Vaughn series, of course, when I was a kid. So you had all these influences, you know, as you're growing up in that era in the 60s. and the 50s, martial arts was sort of like this new thing. Yeah. It was, you know, the thing to do. And it was kind of mysterious, you know, not too many people knew about it. Uh, and so I just kind of, you know, was looking at it. And one day I met a kid who was deformed, um, he, he had a bunch of birth defects and while I've gotten over mine, he, he, there was no getting over his. I mean, he had like no jaw and, you know, his hand was all gimped up and he had one leg severely shorter than the other. And yeah. I became friends with him. Guys would pick on him and I, you know, try to defend him. And then his father saw that. He got me a job because we were so poor working in the construction yards, uh, working with him and I'd go out, you know, after school and I would lift bricks and I would do anything they wanted me to do. And there was a guy there who had a, I'll never forget it. He had this like wax ball and he would just be twisting it. And then, and I found out he was a karate guy and I, I'd start learning a little bit from him. And then Grant's father said to me one day, he says, you know what? Uh, you, you've been so good to my son. What would you guys like to do? He said, Oh, we want to go see martial arts. So he took us down to the Long Beach uh, Internationals in 1967, and here's Vic Moore and Bruce Lee, wow. and they had a test of speed. And everybody reports it that Lee, you know, was faster than Vic Moore, but that's not true. I was there. Huh. Lee, be, Lee was actually almost teary-eyed. He, he, Vic Moore beat him like four out of four out of two, four out of six times. And what they did is they got huh. a point for blocking. Yeah, and they got a point for strike hitting the guy. And they so, only had six points or eight points between them. That's so long ago, so I can't tell you which is which. But I just remember that that Lee, I mean, was dominated by Vic Moore. And then it, all of a sudden, I started Lee kind of played around, and that's the stuff you see on History Channel where he threw the hits to yeah. to like a back knuckle to to Moore's head. But when they show it, they always show it with a certain camera angle. It looks like Lee got in on him. Huh. But if you were there, he was a good foot away before he, he snatched his hand back. There was no way, you know, it could have been blocked. It wasn't, in, it wasn't even in striking range. Yeah, yeah, blocked. right. And that, that kind of like showed the movie side of martial arts, which I became very acquainted with very quickly. Yeah. And then in the same uh, same tournament, uh, Vic Moore fought Chuck Norris. And he beat Chuck Norris badly. I mean, I, at least it looked badly to me. He hit him really hard, dropped him. But somehow Chuck Norris ended up winning the event. And he walks out. And this is the amazing thing about Chuck is he walked out with his wife, who's not his wife now, Gina, but his other wife that time. And he signs to, to Vic Moore. And I, I'd gone down to see Vic Moore because I was so enamored by what he had done mm. with Grant. And um, and Lee, by the way, took a liking to my friend Grant. Um, he he basically, you know, saw that he had one leg shorter than the other, and Lee showed him that he had a leg shorter than the other. Yeah, oh, wow. yeah. You know, and he took he actually took he actually took him off and taught him some lessons, kind of things, and Vic kind of taught me stuff on the side. But my point is, when Chuck Norris was there, what happened was Chuck writes to Vic to the man who beat me, you know. Yeah. And he pointed at his side. We had this big bruise, you know, <laughs> you know, literally beat me. You know, that <laughs> kind of thing. And they and they laughed about it. And I said, "Aren't you mad? You know, because he got the trophy and you you won. I thought you won." He goes, "Son, trophies don't mean anything." He said, "He says to be the best, you got to fight the best." And that man wants to make sure I'm back here next year. Yeah. <laughs> and and so, well, this is the interesting. Two years later, you know, after. Moore taught me all these, like a back, he basically taught me a back knuckle, a rich hand, a front kick, and a reverse punch that afternoon. And I practiced and practiced and got it perfect. And he had asked, you know, I had, I found out he was going to fight again and be back. So I went back like two years later, this is like 1969, and he's fighting the unstoppable Mike Stone. 
Now, Mike yeah. Stone at that time, they were saying had like 91 straight wins. Nobody had defeated him. And I watched Vic Moore defeat him inside of 30 seconds. He dropped him with a rich hand strike the same way that Mike was famous for these rich hands. He dropped him with his own strike, and he swept him at the same time. And Mike hit the floor so hard that his, he separated his shoulder. And Jim Harrelson was there. And I think it's Harrelson or Harrison, Jim, one of the two. I can't remember the name exactly. Mm. But it's the same guy who was on the cover of when I was featured in the Kumite and Black Belt magazine. He was on the cover, actually, of that magazine, believe it or not. Talk about how weird things were. Yeah, well. <laughs> but, <laughs> but he 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 came up, and, and like I said, they wanted to fight Vic, and and then Vic w- was done with it, and he was all surrounded by the Black Dragons who put an end to that. They weren't going to fight anymore. He, Vic had won, and that was the end of it. So as Vic was walking out, I stopped him again and said, hey, Mr. Moore, do you remember me? He looks at me and looks at me, yeah, yeah, I remember you. You're, you know. And he thought I was like this high school age guy, and you got to understand, I was like 5'9 when I was 13 years old. <laughs> and I had a developed body like an adult because I was working – you know, since a kid, I was working jobs. Yeah. And so uh, I said, you know, did you really mean what you said before? To be the best, you got to you gotta fight the best. He goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he says, uh, what, you want to try me, kid? Show me what you got. <laughs> yes, sir. And, and he says, go on, try to lay it on me right here. Well, I did. <laughs> I hit him. <laughs> and... Uh, you know, he had blocked Bruce Lee, like I said, years earlier and everybody else. He couldn't block my punch. And I hit him, and he got angry, and he hit me, and, man, my head sounded like a coconut, like a hollow <laughs> coconut. Man, hit me with the overhand, I remember, with an overhand strike. I, I buckled, went down. I got angry, I, I, and I shot back a strike, and I, I was fighting at that point out of fear. Yeah. You know, totally terrorized. And didn't know what I was doing. He was he was fighting, and we, we and I kept my eye against him for a bit. And uh, they broke us up. The Black Dragons took me aside. Uh, Lawrence Day um, takes me aside and goes, son, says the only person who can fight another Black Dragon is a Black Dragon. Otherwise, you got to fight us all. Whoa. I thought, oh, my gosh, <laughs> I'm going to get killed. Today, I'm going to die. All I wanted was a teacher, and today, I'm going to die. You know, and they all gathered around me, and I'll never forget it. They all gathered around me, you know, and, and, the, and these were the – Hell's Angels of the martial arts in those days, because right. in those days, martial arts were segregated. Blacks couldn't compete with whites in many tournaments, but the Black Dragons kind of made sure that happened. They would go into the whites-only hotels, and they would escort Ray Calhoun, or they'd escort someone like Vic Moore and say, either you fight you know, our guy today, or you fight us all, and they would tear <laughs> up the place. So these guys were bad boys, to say the least. They yeah. were also the ones involved in the famous dojo wars, where people actually got killed in Chicago. Yeah, right. Oh, wow. And so, lo and behold, what happens? I'm starting to cheer up. I'm getting ready. Okay, I'm ready to, you know, fight all these guys. And I get smacked in the face with a shirt. And they say, welcome to the Black Dragons, kid. Got to make you one of us. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's amazing. So, that was sort of like my introduction to that. And then I'd run away in the summers and hang out with them. And they'd, they'd put me up in, a, in a, the rear room in an adult bookstore. <laughs> 14 years old. 14 years old. Perfect. Place yeah, yeah. <laughs> benefits. <laughs> yeah, so. 14 year old's dream. And, 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 I got, and that's why I got to Tanaka was through them. Right, okay. You know, he, was was training, he was training them. Right. He was training John Keehan. In fact, John Keehan was supposed to fight in the Kuinte that I became famous for. What people don't realize is that he died that May that year. And it was in November that, you know, we, they had the event. And I was I was sent off in his place, right. and I had to fight Vic Moore, believe it or not, for that to to qualify. Benny Akitas was also supposed to fight or get the invitation. Yeah, from what I understand, he fought he fought his guy in Hawaii. Uh, they tied. I tied with Moore, and honestly, the reason I think that Benny didn't go well, one of the reasons wasn't was one size because I, I I'm tremendously larger than Benny. Yeah. To he 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 already kind of was going to bring too much notoriety to it because he was well known for his uh, kickboxing already. Yeah, and they didn't want that. They they do these things kind of like under the table. 
Yeah. And also um, the fact that he was, you know, he, to them, they thought he was Hispanic. And uh, he's really an Apache Indian. That's that's his real heritage. Mm. Um, but, uh, and I know his brother very well, Alfred. So, you know, and Alfred even says it, you know, it was supposed to be a fight between me and him. And then for whatever reason, it, it never came about. And then I ended up getting picked and I went to the Kumite and well, the rest is history. Yeah. So Dude. obviously the your experience at the Kumite went on to inspire Bloodsport, obviously, which is how a couple of kids like us back in the day found out about Frank Dukes and yeah. became quite obsessed quite quickly. Yeah. What what was what would you say the main differences are between what we saw in Bloodsport versus the real life Kumite? Well, first of all, the real the Bloodsport, the way they show it to you, it's sort of like single elimination. It's yeah. It, 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 that kind of fighting only happens at the end of the Kumite. See, real Kumite uh, fighting is really about endurance at first. Then you narrow it down to the last 10 or 8 fighters. And then they pair off, like you saw in the first UFC. Okay. And then they pair off, and then yeah. you get paired off and paired off until you finally have your Multiple final fight. Yeah. So yeah. what happens is you'll, you'll fight guys that might be your opponents. You might fight guys that are not in a real Kumite. And you'll do... 60 bouts over a three-day period. Some guys do it in a one-day period. depends on that promoter and how he's doing it. And whoever has the most points or the most wins, whoever falls in that top eight category, those are the guys who fight it out for the winner. Right. So that's the, that's the difference in how it's done. And the matches are different too because we're not in a cage. We're on a platform. You just had to drive the guy off the platform. Match was over. And a lot of times guys do they would watch and count how they were doing, and sometimes they'd drop two or three matches just because they wanted to preserve themselves. Right. You didn't see guys really punch into the head all that much, like with fists. It was really mainly, you know, open hand strikes, you know, uh, when, because after hitting for so long, your hands will just can only take so much. Yeah, right. So they um, kind of save it up for, their, know, yeah, for when it counts. Yeah. And was, was Chong Lee based on a real person? And Yeah, Chong yeah. Lee was a real guy. Wow. He's a real guy. Was he, he as he, terrifying he, he, as, <laughs> as he is in the movie? Oh, more. <laughs> more? More. Oh, geez. The more, Chung, the real Chung Lee was uh, towered over me by about almost three inches. Oh, my God. Two to three inches. He was taller than me. Maybe four inches. He was, he was, a, he was tall. He was a tall Korean. He was North Korean from what I understand. All right. Huh. And he was, you know, he, 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 you know, for him, it was do or die, you know? Yeah. Yeah. He had a different kind of motivation. And so you know, he was a champion, of course, yeah. you know, prior, prior to me winning. He'd won it, I don't know how many times, and he actually had killed the person in the ring. That that part is true. Oh, well, he yeah. did. Jeez. Yeah, he was well known for it. <laughs> right. And so like the movie, were you a bit of, uh, when you first arrived at the Kumite, were you seen as a bit of an outsider? or Do you think they underestimated you? Uh, they totally understand me. No Westerners had actually made it past the second tier, usually. They never trained for the conditioning. They're always trained more or less like a boxer trains. Right. In the sense that they were trained for, like, you know, uh, you know, round fighting or, you know, like, mm. uh, you know, single elimination. Yeah. Not where it goes on and on and on and on. But because of Tanaka, he had been the Kumite champion. I was trained that way. So I was ready and prepared for that. Mm. But most people, the the Caucasians that came, they they weren't they weren't prepared for that, and they usually pick. You know, it, it's it's very selective in how they pick people. I was supposed to be cannon fodder to them because yeah. I didn't have any real strong lineage behind me, other than the endorsement of Tanaka. Yeah, and that was in the Black Dragons, and that was it. Right, and that's how I ended up getting in there. But uh, I think I was very well underestimated. In fact, they refused to believe I won it the first time. Huh. They made me fight. If you talk to Joe Cinda, who's the uh, VP of Warner Brothers at the time, he was also uh, he was also in attendance. And uh, I had to. Say, I mean, Joe came up to me. Why are you doing this again? You're gonna how are you gonna and say? I got to fight it again, man. So, so they won't believe it. Wow. So I'll just do what I do. And that's what happened. I had to fight it three times before they actually declared me the winner. And they still went into denial. The people, you know, haters come out and talk and they just keep their mouth shut. They wouldn't say a damn thing. So yeah. three different Kumites. In my defense. Huh? You fought in three different Kumites. Yes. Oh, wow. wow. Yeah, they, they refused to accept the first one. 
Hey Frank, you you touched on the conditioning that prepared you, and in the film, there's some there's some uh, some amazing sequences and montages of of the training. Yeah, um, very very close to what what I did. Yeah, amazing. I was I was I was fortunate enough to be the choreographer on Bloodsport. I also really wrote it. Right. Michelle Wettis got all the credit. <laughs> yeah. Um, he was really more or less a glorified stenographer, to be quite honest. Right. And so he's tried to in years try to say, oh, nothing happened, it isn't real, all this kind of stuff, because he's trying to sell his own script as a fictional script to, in his services. Right. But the fact is, the movie, if you look at the contracts, there's no way Bloodsport could be made as a fictional picture. That's It's it's in all the contracts that way. It's reflecting all the contracts that way. Yeah, right. And so, you know, it just amazes me how people get away with that kind of stuff when you've got, I mean, you have a studio putting millions of dollars in it. Nobody just said, oh, we're going to take his word for it. I mean, I had to talk to a battery of attorneys. You know, I had to present fight footage, evidence. I mean, everything you could imagine uh, for them to put those uh, statements on the back of the movie. Otherwise, the company was liable right. to the government to come in and, and basically arrest everybody. Nobody's going to do that. No attorney's certainly going to lose his bar license over that. For what reason? Yeah, yeah right. You know? <laughs> He's not going exactly. to lose his bar card, <laughs> but it just shows you the absurdity that people can can go through and and make sensational claims just to get attention for themselves. Yeah, I see what you're saying. So if it, the the more fictional it is, the more Sheldon is it's his it story. His. Yeah, yeah, I can see why that would happen. Yeah, and if you notice, Sheldon always used me in every. I always came back. Yeah. Lionheart. I was I worked on that. Double impact. Same thing. Oh, yeah. uh, on Double Impact, you don't even see me. They just say, oh, special yeah. thanks to Frank Dice, you know. And in Double Impact, what happened there is I just got tired of writing up and giving the ideas and all the stuff to Sheldon. He was taking credit for it. I was getting no credits for it. Um, and I and I found out, like I said, you know, later that he was telling people, oh, it was all fictional, all this. When I did ask him about it, say, someone said, he said, oh, no, they're making it up. It was even in the L.A. Times. Uh, he said... Um, uh, everyone took my word for it. When I confronted him, when the, the, the article came out, he, of course, denied it. Years later now, 20 years or 30 years later, he, of course, is telling a whole different story. But if you look at the paperwork, he even talked to the attorneys involved. Mm. His own attorney, it, it, it contradicts him. So, you know, what else can I say yeah, you right. know, regarding that? Um, and I refused to to work on Double Impact writing any more than I already did. I mean, that whole end sequence of Double Impact was created really by me. It was my idea when we got to Hong Kong. Mm. I was a friend of mine, um, Gloria Wu, who started pointing out to me all these smuggling that was going on with Mercedes and to China at the time and how that was kind of being a big business. So I, I, I brought that up to Sheldon and of course it got into the script. Yeah, right. The final fight scene, you know, taking place at the docks. Uh, the guy being killed with a container. That all came from, again, from me from me doing research there. I was brought to Hong Kong prior to them doing the movie. I was with Sheldon every day in, post, in pre-production uh, and developing all this. And now when I finally saw he was getting nowhere, I said, I'm done. Right. I said, you know, I'm, I'm tired of you guys taking credit for all my work and you're making me less and less and talking bad and I want nothing to do with you. Mm-hmm. And then it took a friend, a mutual friend by the name of Frank Mattioli that they called up and Sheldon called me back and trying to get me back to work. And then that's how we ended up with the quest. Right. Uh, and okay. I wrote, and I wrote that script and I had the script done. And then they brought in Ed Kamara to write it with me. Ed Kamara is a very well-respected writer in Hollywood. He wrote uh, Lady Hawk. Um, he wrote the Bruce Lee story that, that yeah. uh, the dragon yeah, I think yeah. it was called mm-hmm. he, he, a number of, of, of films and, uh, we wrote it, we wrote it together, and then of course I watched exactly the same uh, mo. Yeah. No, a little sooner than I turn in my script, here comes Sheldon. He rewrites it. Then comes Mel Cosby. Then comes uh, Mel Friedman and Chris Cosby. They rewrite, and before you know it, I'm like so far in the back burner, nobody remembers me, and knows that it's my stuff. But and it was ridiculous. So you really did a comparison between what was I wrote and what they wrote. It's, it, it's you know. It doesn't fall under the legal term plagiarism, okay, the legal definition, because you can change like 10% or whatever. Right. But the meat and guts of it, that, that was my story. That was my dialogue. Mm. It was my character development. 
and that's what got killed. And they turned really a, an A script into a C script. Oh yeah. When you got done with it, it was all camp. Yeah. Was the quest based on any of your real life experiences as well? Or? No, the quest was actually based on. This is the interesting thing. The quest, the original script, was based on the JD scheme, which people wouldn't even know about. You know, and most people don't know about. Right. But it was, they were a very famous gang that roamed through China, Shanghai, etc. And they were also kind of, there's a legend around the Kumite with them, associated with them trying to steal the gold dragon, which was which was the prize in the, in the movie. But in mm. real life, it was a gold belt. Traditionally, mm. when you won the Kumite, you would either get a sword or you got a gold belt. Mm. One of those two things, things you would get. And, I mean, you look at those movies, when you and Sheldon and... Jean-Claude Van Damme get together. Obviously, yes, there's been some challenges, but the end result, you guys are like, you guys are like the martial arts Beatles in a way. <laughs> you, these yeah, movies are. are all iconic. <laughs> it's iconic. It's, yeah. I, I didn't mean to cut you off, but yeah, when you think about it, you know, you put us together. But really, um, it was really Jean. It was really Jean-Claude and myself. Yeah. To be quite, to be quite honest, yeah. Um, Jean-Claude and me really kind of ran the whole show on on Bloodsport. Right, and that's the that's the show that really went. Sheldon really had no involvement, yeah. other than he helped prepare a script, and the script he did was so so it, it diverted from the original story so much from when I I wrote that they brought in Mel Cosby, no Mel Friedman and Chris Cosby, right. um, as writers to rewrite it, and I met with them and they put it back on track to what it was, and that was based more on the Kumite. Sheldon came in and he basically. Um, tried to make it more of like a Rambo movie. You know right. I mean? <laughs> it was sort of like, it was sort of like I did martial arts, but I was Rambo, you know? That <laughs> yeah, right. And uh, oddly, you know, Sheldon actually did go on to write a Rambo film. Yeah, right. He wrote <laughs> Rambo 3, I think, didn't he? Yeah. That's, yeah. That's so, funny. you know, I got to give him credit, you, yeah. know, you know, in that regard. Yeah. But when it came to martial arts, you know, he, you know, the guy was clueless. He didn't know anything about, he didn't know what the difference between a front punch to, you know, reverse punch. You know, yeah. he, he couldn't tell you what the difference was. And Jean-Claude was pretty fresh when you guys were starting out on Bloodsport, right? You, you trained him for a yeah, few months? Yeah, he, he, he was very fresh. And I get very upset over sometimes when people say that I say he wasn't a champion and when we had our court case. Right. And that's not what I said. What I said is he wasn't a Kumite champion. Mm. I never said he didn't uh, okay. fight PKA. I never said that he didn't do those things. I said when it came down to really the expertise of like what you call an MMA match today, mm. he was close. He had nothing to do with that. Right, he, that was totally out of his league, out of his spectrum. That's what I said. Right, and then somehow that gotten distorted to me saying, "Oh, he was never a, a kickboxing champion or whatever." But uh, I think he was a champion in in for Europe in his league over there. And there's so many different leagues. He was not a champion for the PKA, as far as I know. He's never a professional kickboxing association champion like Don Wilson was. Yeah, yeah. You, yeah, you guys trained, I think, for three months in the lead up to Bloodsport. And I think yeah, I heard he, you mentioned before. Yeah, he, that, trained with, he trained with me for three months. Yeah. He came in, it would be him, Shell Kesey, and, and Gladys. Uh, yeah. And they would bring their dog, Buffy. <laughs> never forget it. <laughs> so I was afraid Buffy was like going to take a bite out of me or something. <laughs> I'm showing him or doing movements. You know? Yeah, yeah. Of and course. he did great. He did great. He was very studious. He, he was earnest. Uh, John Claude was a different person in those days. I mean, you he was the type of guy that you wanted to see win. Yeah. And that was the secret of of his success, early success. Yeah. And then I I noticed that he had some later on he developed some kind of personality disorders. And uh you know, he showed all the all the symptoms of being bipolar because he could go from being laughable and affable to Light, a light switch goes on, and the next thing you know, he's screaming at people, right? You know, okay, uncontrollably. And that's you know, my heart goes out to him. You know, I still love John Claude. I mean, I don't, I, I feel sorry for him. I realize, you know, as I found out more and more about drug addiction and how it changes the brain chemistry, how it affects people, yeah. And uh, I just wish I was maybe more in his life, maybe I could have prevented it. I don't know, but. Yeah, he was a great guy. He still, I still have feelings for the guy. I have no harsh feelings for him. I, I'd still work with him, uh, you know, based on certain conditions, of course. But that would be it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, and 
get the know, band I'm, back I together. Don't, yeah, I don't get know the what band. Else to say, you know, yeah. he was a great guy. He's, I think he's a good human being. I, deep down, if you really search Jean Claude's core of his being, he's he, he wants to do right. I think we found that too because we're basically going through all the Jean Claude Van Damme movies in chronological order. So the last one, what was the last one we did? Uh, the time time cop. Time cop. Yeah. And especially yeah. in the earlier movies, because we, we try and find old interviews and things, and when you really look at it in, in chronological order and you see young Jean-Claude Van Damme, mm. he, I totally hear what you're saying. He seems like such a genuine... Positive. Yeah, positive, just hard worker, and you want to see him succeed, exactly that. Mm. And I'm kind of dreading getting to the darker days a little bit because as we get through yeah. the filmography. His interviews uh, well, change a bit. Yeah. You know I think he wasn't prepared for his success. Yeah, I can imagine. I think Jean-Claude was a great technician. I think he understands, he, he, has, he has a great command of his body. Yeah. But in terms of martial arts, he wasn't quite there yet. Right. Because when you really study martial arts, it really becomes more of an internal journey than an external journey. Right. He probably had all the external, but maybe less of the internal. Is that Right. Yeah. He had all the external going on and he wanted to be a movie star I mean, yeah. that, he, since he was a kid. I mean, that, that was his dream. You know, uh, the martial arts for him was more sport karate, mm. you know, yeah. it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, the, and unfortunately, you know, martial arts, the way it was taught from the sixties on seventies, his generation, it, it was so watered down that it lost the essence of the spiritual side of what it's about. Yeah, right. You know, Funakoshi really made it very clear that, Shotokan Karate, for example, was all about perfecting one's character. It isn't about really self-defense. And he had no choice because there was a very famous uh, gentleman by the name of Moto. He's probably the greatest karate man that ever lived. He was a kumite fighter, by the way, also. Right. Um, Wow. And someone I actually looked up to, he's from Okinawa. He actually walked into Funakoshi's dojo and submitted him three times just by grabbing by the wrist. Funakoshi couldn't do anything to him. Yeah, right. And so that's where Funakoshi was changed by the experience and he, he became he made it more about a personal journey and using this to harden ourselves and mm. how, learn how to take hard knocks in life. And he yeah. became so far more uh, successful. I mean, everybody knows the name Funakoshi. They see Shotokan Karate all over the world. You'd never hear about Moto. And Moto was of the royal family in Okinawa. Right. Hey, Frank, when you... Um, just talking and listening to you there, it was it was interesting. I th- I wanted to get your point of view on the current state of martial arts in relation to what you were saying about you know the external versus the internal. And my point of view, I'm keen to get your opinion on, is that the new stuff, the, all the MMA and the UFC type things have sort of taken away a lot of the focus on the traditional arts like the karate and, and, and you know, the deeper yeah. discovery. But even the traditional those. arts aren't the traditional arts. See, mm. this, is the, this is the irony of the whole thing. You know, the real traditional arts aren't even the traditional arts. They, they, they pretend like they are, but they are. I was very fortunate when I grew up. I, I lived in, in the San Fernando Valley, and it was literally the mecca for the greatest martial artists in the world. Mm. And I got to meet them and see them and see them how they really trained. People like Bill Ryosaki, uh, Fumio Damora, um, Bong Suhan. Yeah. These, this, these, these were the real guys, you know, who came out of that era. And they all had, were, were all very well grounded. It's like the Karate Kid. You know how you saw the Karate Kid, the, the master was very grounded. Yeah. Very humble. Yeah. And then you had the other, you know, what was it? And the Cobra Kai. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, guys who are like, you know, all pumped up. Yeah, strike no first, mercy strike hard. Yeah. This is the difference. It, it really exists. And when you understand martial arts, you have to understand real strategy. And the greatest strategist is the person who wins without battle. And so you start to perfect that. And it's all about balance. I mean, it's all, all martial arts is just harmony. It's all about how to harmonize your spirit, your mind, and your body. That's what it's about. You can't, you know, you can't fight to the death if you don't have a, a deep sense of conviction and ethics for a greater cause. I mean, you can fight to the death. I mean, of course, in, in a sporting event, you can fight in anything, but if you're going to fight for a cause, 
you know, you know, and be capable of giving your life, actually sacrificing your life for an ideal. Yeah. Well, that takes a certain amount of conviction and training on the inside, the spiritual side. Yeah, right. And that that wins wars. Yeah. You know. So, I don't know if I'm drawing too long of a bow here, but would you say that something like the Kumite is really about those different ideas coming together? Um, and yeah, you know, that's, that's very astute on your part. Um, very, very astute. Really, Kumite was a learning experience. It really it wasn't about putting butts in seats, yeah. and it wasn't mm-hmm. about really saying, oh, I want it, I'm the greatest. That didn't really make you the greatest in our circles. Even though I won probably all my matches, mm-hmm. you know, and, and the reason I won is because I brought a whole new technology right. to, to martial arts at that time, which I could talk about. Um, and, it's a, and it re- creates reproducible results. It's the reason the U.S. Navy SEALs are using my technology today and others are using it. But it was a learning experience. And guys had a – it was a, it's a laboratory. The Kumite yeah. really was a laboratory. Mm. It was a place where, you, like I said, it was a test of endurance. You went in. And you got to show and try out your movements or your theories and see if what worked and what didn't work. A lot of guys, you know, they, they were great fighters, but they lost because their ideas weren't sound. Yeah. You know, they'd have certain combinations and they try to employ that combination and it would leave them wide open. Or they would they would be dominant, let's say a grapple. Some guys were just grappling heavy in their mm-hmm. training. Other guys were just strike heavy in their training. You had to be balanced, really, between the two. Uh, and you saw that in the very first UFC match, where guys had never seen grappling in their life before, just laying, you know, they were they were helpless. Yeah. Right. You yeah. know, and now we've watched the whole sport, what, metamorphize. It, you know, it's it's it's, it's uh, transitioned into uh, this harmony between striking and the ground game. Yeah. You know, and right back to harmony, which I talked to you about which is what martial arts is, is all about harmony. And you yeah. have to have harmony in your spirit, harmony in the academic side. You have to understand the academics of what's going on as well as the, as the physical. And it's crazy to think as well, like so many of those people that are now in the UFC and the UFC itself is, you know, very much inspired by the Frank Duke story and Bloodsport and that kind of thing. So well, it, it even took my name. I mean, you know, I don't know if you know this, but Vic Moore, when he fought me twice, he couldn't beat me and he would call me the ultimate fight champion. Right. <laughs> and when and when Art Davies did this event, they contacted me and said, "Well, we want to hold this event in your honor, and we're going to call it the Ultimate Fighter Challenge." Oh wow! Off of my name, and that's what they tried to do. And then when I didn't agree to it, they sent a guy who pursued me for about a year and a half till I had to get a restraining order. A guy named Zane Frazier. Till we finally ended up in, in, in a match where he cold cocked me from behind um, in the Draco. Uh, martial arts uh, festival held at Century City Plaza. Oh you know? yeah, I mean, it, it, but they took the name from from my nickname, the Ultimate Fight Champion, and and if you look at Bloodsport, it was called the Ultimate Fight Contest. Oh uh, yeah, right. Well, the other you one know, that's so. interesting, I'm not sure if you're aware of this one. You probably are, but you know the video game Mortal Kombat. That's yes. that's based on. Bloodsport as well. So that's even a part of your legacy as well is this whole video game franchise. <laughs> no, it's true. Yeah. It's very true. I did inspire that. In fact, I remember when it was it, Johnny, before they called him Johnny yeah. Cage, it was supposed to be Jean-Claude. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And they were talking to Jean-Claude. I remember that. And they had a falling out. I remember yeah. that. And they were talking about it because of Bloodsport. But yeah, that's very, you're very right on the money there. Yeah, because even um, Johnny you know? Cage's outfit was basically Jean Claude's bike shorts, and you know it was it was that yeah. um, exact look, basically, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it it was, and that's what they were trying to do is to have Jean Claude and do it that way. Yeah, they they wanted to do it and call it Bloodsport, but they wouldn't. The studio wouldn't agree to it. Um, yeah. And then, of course, I would have been cut in for merchandising points on it. I wish it had done. <laughs> yeah, instead of, instead of calling it Mortal Kombat, That'd still but, be going. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but then they called it Mortal Kombat, and then they they they, they, they called it John Claude, and then of course it became Johnny Cage. Yeah, and they got away from it, you know, as much as they could, like that. Yeah, you know, the same same thing kind of happened with Bloodsport Two and that whole thing Three. They basically the producers tried to of those tried to say, oh, it never happened, and this and that, and they tried to fictionalize the stories, and I ended up taking them to court and winning. Um, you know, we settled out because it was quite obvious that. They had, you know, breached the contract 
my contract only called for uh, one remake or sequel. And they ended up doing three or four, which they weren't entitled to. And they all had to be based on my character. And they said no, because it wasn't my character and they made up a different name. Therefore, they shouldn't have to, to pay yeah. me. Right. And so that's where a lot of that controversy around me really comes from. The studios not wanting to pay me and trying to say, oh, this is fiction or this is this didn't happen to try to get away with, you know, running the franchise without, you know, having any having to uh, meet its uh, compensation. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I lost out probably ten million dollars on that deal. Jeez. That, that's 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 what they were able to take for the, the sequel. Right. Yeah. That's what Marez was paid, I believe, uh, for it. And I didn't see a dime, and I should have seen some considerable money on that. Yeah. But like I said, the way he got out of it is by trying to say it was a fiction, and then everything was a fiction. Yeah. yeah. Well, the and thing then is, you have, you, you have John, and then you have Sheldon Lynch not helping, saying, "Oh, nobody, nobody, you know, they all took my word for it." No, that's not the case. Well, the other, the other thing I was thinking is, there's so much. Like we've got Bloodsport, that's awesome. That covers kind of the, the your Kumite story. But there's so much that's happened in your life. Like I would love to see the CIA mm-hmm. years as a, as a movie. I think that would be amazing. <laughs> Has that ever come up as an opportunity that you you would look at? I'd love to do it. I mean, I, I'm surprised the producer hasn't jumped on it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Now Hollywood hasn't jumped on it. I mean, there's a built-in audience there. Exactly. Yeah. you got us right here. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so maybe start talking to some producers. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we'll do something. We won't speak to Sheldon. We'll the teacher, we won't speak to him. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, with the other martial artists on screen, on film, especially of the era, so that 80s, 90s, around when Bloodsport came out, how do you think someone like Jean-Claude compares to someone like, say, Steven Seagal or um, other on-screen martial artists? Well, Jean-Claude was really a brilliant performer. Yeah. And I'll tell you, he's better than a lot of them. And and what people then took for granted is when you see all these other fight scenes for some of these people, like even Keanu Reeves, when he does his scenes, oh, yeah. he and he's he's terrific. I really, I really love. I would love him to portray me. That, yeah. that, that would be great. Yeah. But um, uh, and there was, by the way, a, a negotiation with his manager and my manager uh, in 1996 for him to portray me actually in a movie. Oh wow! That that actually was actually discussed at one time. But uh, what John Claude's brilliant at is when I choreographed, and this is where, where it paid off for us. We, we spent three months of me training him and getting him so he could do s- sequential moves. I trained him how to do combos. Right. And by doing that, I, I broke his rhythm. Like, and he was a Shotokan-based trained martial artist. And Shotokan, it's very, you know, one, two, you know, what they call two-step moves, three-step moves, and that's it. And I got him to flow to move and then we built from that flow so when you see the fight scenes in Bloodsport, it's just not a cutaway it's not like you know yeah. it's you see the whole a whole picture and you see him going on and, and you see it going on for quite a mm. bit mm. of time and most people can't do that they can't keep you know four or five moves uh in their head you know when they're first learning it on the set you know yeah. they have to they need weeks to do something like that and we were given you know hours to come up with our choreography before each fight scene. Yeah, That's basically what we had. And that was a challenge. And then I had guys who had never trained in martial arts at all. They were, you know, entertainers, dancers, male dancers. And they were in the movie. Oh, i got a question. Um, Speaking of strikes from Bloodsport and choreography, the the sumo (laughs) nut punch, (laughs) fact or fiction, no, it's fact. Oh, that is amazing. <laughs> wow. Fact. That's incredible. Fact. Well, that's another yeah, one the, that went into the Mortal old, Kombat. Yeah. The, well, it was, actually, it was a bladder punch I pulled off. Uh, and it wasn't a hit to the ball. So yeah, I, okay. You yeah. Know, it was, it, it's a bladder punch. When a guy gets over you, you, you can hit the bladder in a certain way at that angle and go right in up against And that's just, it's devastating. That sounds unpleasant. <laughs> yeah. <I've>, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Um most guys, when you fight the Kumite, we all had a steel cup. Right. Yeah. So okay. Yeah. It didn't it didn't pay to hit there? Yeah. Right. <laughs> steel cup. That's a, okay. that's a good just so good detraction. I mean, that's kind of, kind of how it was. It was basically it was a boxing. 
know, the pointers you wear in boxing, the yeah. protective gear. Yeah. We would wear that a lot of times, a version of that. Sure. Kind of a cut underneath our, our uniforms. Sure. That, that's all you were allowed. You were allowed a mouthpiece and you were allowed a, a groin protection. That was it. Right. Some guys were allowed in different kumites. You were allowed to take a sponge and cut up the sponge, and then you could put the sponge over your knuckles. You could tape. You could tape the sponge over it. Mm. That was it. That was the old days. Yeah, right. You know, <laughs> most of the time nobody did that. We just, we just, we just went in and did it. Yeah. You know. Oh. So, and I remember guys they conditioned their 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 knuckles, and you'd see, you know, an inch, almost. I mean literally an inch to half an inch of callus on their yeah. knuckles. Jeez. Oh, man. No. <laughs> so that was the old school. That yeah. is old school, absolutely. Yeah, it was, it was great times. It was great times. Unfortunately, you know, what happened with martial arts, the reason you don't see a lot of traditional around is when World War II came around, most, like in Japan, they were legalized. Right. So the only way they could preserve the culture is they had to change it into a sport or a, a physical yeah. fitness activity. Yeah. And so huh. it became exceptionally watered down. And then, of course, the spiritual side, they, they were limited in their classes. You know, in the old days, you'd go to a school and you train four to six hours. You know, uh, this is pre-World War II. Mm. You know, you were learning. Now, after World War II, you know, they were limited to 45 minutes of instruction. Yeah. You know, yeah, right. what are you going to learn in 45 minutes? Yeah. <laughs> you know, so they came up with katas uh, and, and movements as a way to kind of preserve it, preserve the culture. Interesting. Well, speaking of training, your your, your martial arts form, you, you train the Navy SEALs on that these days, don't you? Is yes. That, yeah, right. I've, I've trained many, many major military organizations around, around the world, spec ops units around the world yeah, from right. many different countries. I'm very, very proud of that. Have you been down to Australia much? I That's the one place I want to go. Every time I've tried to get to Australia, I can't. I even have family in Australia. Yeah, really? I, I do. I would love to have you. Yeah. In, fact, in fact, one of my family members has got a black belt under Timo Sanvarini down there. Yeah, right. So these days, um, what's taking up your time? What, what's Frank Dukes doing on a day-to-day basis? Uh, trying to get not get in trouble with my wife. <laughs> <laughs> that makes three of us. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I, I, honestly, I, you know, I'm uh, reti- retired. You know, uh, got my military pension. I'm uh, basically basically just just been doing a lot of volunteer work. I did the Frank Dix Fellowship. We go around the world. I set up uh, classes for underprivileged children in parks all over the world. Amazing. Uh, that's, you know, find the instructors, train the instructors, give them all the support they need. And that's something I've been doing, you know, quietly. Yeah, uh, sure. Right. Most of my life. And I've continued with that. The yeah. organization is starting to build and get uh, a tremendous amount of support and, and uh, from other organizations, like the World Organization for Peace. They're the ones who brokered the deal between North and South Korea, between the two presidents to meet. Uh, we just had our first... Uh, awards dinner in Mexico City last year, and we're getting ready to probably uh, do it again. And uh, I'm just continuing with that program. You know, we try to find financially sustainable solutions to social problems. That's that's what I do. I'm also now talking to my students, and they've all kind of urged me to start a Facebook group and actually start teaching again, to actually start teaching guys like yourself in Australia and people around the world, start sharing my knowledge with and so I think great. I'm going to do that next. That's yeah, the next amazing. thing I'm going to do. <laughs> <We're> <laughs> I think, yeah, I think there's a generation that could use a, a bit more of a focus on the internal side of yeah. martial arts. Absolutely. 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 And that's, and I think that's what's missing is most people don't know it. They yeah. just, it's just never, the teachers never had the, a lot of great teachers have the knowledge, but they never were in a position to impart the knowledge. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. You know, because they're trying to, teach and have make a living for themselves at the same time. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I can imagine once you start having to sell it, it probably gets a lot more external, I suppose. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, and, you know, and I, like I said, I'm, I'm very proud of my boys. I've trained a lot of great masters. Uh, I, I, it, it, just, it just amazed me how many of my, you know, I, I don't 
teach many people, but, but the ones I have taught have taken major roles in, in, in martial arts history. Um, I have Alex Kunin, who's one of my black belts. He runs uh, All Japan Jiu-Jitsu Federation now. Wow. I've got uh, Brett Ambrose, who, who was head of the Burbank Police Department's in defensive tactics uh, for California. Larry Eklund, same thing. I have a number of my teachers who I've taught are now teaching, you know, in, in the mil- military institutions at the highest level. Amazing. Uh, so I'm, I'm pretty proud of that. And that, that comes from the reality and, and being able to have something that produces reproducible results, you know, yeah. and that's what my technology, that's what Duke's, uh, Duke's Roo is. And I use a thing called fast focus action skill strategy tactics. And it's based on the laws of combat, certain laws I figured out, like there's only 12 angles of attack with 12 corresponding angles of evasion that produce the unguarded moment in an opponent. And when you know those, I don't care what style you're doing, you up your game. Yeah, yeah It sure. just changes it dramatically. And that's why all these uh, institutions have called me in and had me work with them and, and train their people because it totally changes the way you think and the way you access the information. Uh, for example, we're able to bypass the the, uh, the amygdala and, and access the frontal cortex of the brain so your reaction time comes infinitely faster. Right. I mean, I remember uh, the air marshal spent a tremendous amount of money on getting their draw time for their officers, yeah. you know, down a couple of milliseconds. And they, they were happy about that. Hmm. I came in and I was actually knocking it down by one or two seconds. They were <laughs> just like, they didn't know what to think. <laughs> That's a game changer. Uh, it, it is. And in fact, what I did in Mexico was such a game changer that. I'm the only, by the way, at that time, I don't know what it is today, but uh, at that time was the only foreign national ever teaching their, in their police academy. And I taught very special units and I taught them what my technology and, and, uh, and it is a proprietary technology to the point that uh, if you were caught teaching that technology outside of the circuit, you went straight to jail. You, you had to sign a paper to learn it in Mexico yeah. as a peace officer. And uh, it really did change the game in, on the war of drugs down there, as far as the police presence and, and, the, and their survivability, because it changed the tactics. Well, and it was limited. A lot of times the drug cartels were getting their tactics from guys in the military, uh, and they would hire them to come work with them. And this was, I came up with a whole different way of doing things for their special units that are very close-knit and well-monitored, to say the least. So the information never got out. That's incredible. Wow. I mean, that that alone is an incredible legacy because of the ongoing, you know, war on drugs down there. It's it's huge. Oh yeah, there's like a hundred thousand people killed a year in the war on drugs in Mexico. We lost in ten years fifty thousand American soldiers in ten years during the Vietnam so War. To give you an idea of the the violence and what's going on down there, and it, and it's it's real and it's people don't realize how how brave these people are. Yeah. yeah. You, you, they really don't. You, they have no idea what it's like to go up against a cartel, you know, and and trying to survive what's down there. Because they'll, they'll show up and they'll go to a small town chief of police and say, you either do things for us or we kill you. Yeah. And it's your family. Simple. Yeah. And that's after they killed his predecessor. Yeah. Yeah. So I've been pretty active all my life. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, it sounds like it. I was just, I'm yeah. kind of just th- processing all of this information because really, like Greg said, each each one of those yeah. things for any person is an amazing legacy, but you've managed to have a legacy in all these different areas from from pop culture to martial arts to actually just doing good in the world the more generally. Line, yeah. um, it's amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, Frank, I had... Uh, <laughs> I had one last question. I, I, I can't help but notice that incredible wall behind you. I was going to ask you if you had any Good question, any yeah. favorite pieces of memorabilia from what's a pretty remarkable oh, wow. life. All right, let me give you a tour here. Yeah. <laughs> let me give you, see if I can give you a little bit of a tour. Uh, excuse me, guys. Hey, guys, Tristan here. Sorry to interrupt. So basically this part of the interview, Frank gave us a tour of his office and showed us whole bunch of memorabilia and um, uh, medals and, and all kinds of great stuff doesn't really translate to audio so uh, we're gonna skip over that part but we will pick it right back up where he 
lands on the ultimate piece of memorabilia, I suppose, the jewel in his crown, the Kumite Trophy. So back to the interview now where Frank is going to talk us through his Kumite Trophy and the, and the interesting story behind that. And, uh, yeah, these, these different medals. And, of course, the last thing, not least, is the infamous oh, Kumite wow. Trophy. That's it. Wow. Which, by the way, I, I want to tell you the story behind that, if you guys got the time for that. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Make a long story short, when you fight in the Kumite, essentially you you have to get sell back the sword. That's how you get paid. Right. So, oh, okay. you know, because it's yeah. technically amateur bout, but it isn't. Yeah. And so... The, guy, the Black Dragons, knowing that I was going to have to sell back my sword, they and knowing I would win, I'd won it, they basically went out and they created this trophy for me. Okay. And they created it, and on it says uh, City Celtics Fortius, which is the Olympics uh, motto, you know, swifter, higher, stronger. They had international, uh, uh, what do you call it, Olympic committee on it. And I go, well, why did you guys do that? Well, there's, there's no such thing. It doesn't exist. He says, yeah, we know. This <laughs> <laughs> isn't exactly an official award, right? Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's given to us by you. It's our event. We gave it to you. Yeah, just to always remember to remember it by and because we want you to do an article for Locked Up Magazine one right. day. You know, yeah. when we come out and we want to go public, yeah, so we right. want you to have something. Yeah, yeah. and so that's how that came about. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know? that's cool. And so, but that's that's it was more of a goof. It was yeah. given to me as a goof. Not as the actual war itself. The actual war, like in the movie, was a sword. Yeah, right. Sure. And you got the so, crown, of course, as well from the wife. That's important. I've got the crown, of course, as well. <laughs> <laughs> also awarded to me by the Black Dragons in front of my wife. We were go. just dating at that time. I think it's. I think it, it, it convinced her. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> in fact, when you want to hear an interesting story, when I had when I got the award, they gave me a big plaque that goes with it, and it was. They, we were in Lido Beach in a hotel, and in one of the other ballrooms, a couple was getting married. Well, this guy was such a huge blood sport fan that he came out. He was excited, and me and my wife actually had our first dance like at his wedding. <laughs> like I said, we just we were. I mean, I knew my wife. That was like the second day I met her, you know. Mm-hmm. And so we danced and all that. And then I turned around and I gave him my plaque. Oh wow! To the couple. Oh, nice. So, nice. And uh, and then the guys, you know, that's just the way we are. You know, we don't hang on to awards in the Black Dragons. You'll find a, a tremendous amount of us is as though we give awards to each other. It's not that we don't appreciate it, but we tend to um, give them to other people, to underprivileged kids, to inspire them. Because that's yeah. remember what I told you about the internal. Yeah. yeah. That's that's the internal side. Yeah. That's what yeah. it's about. You have to be in service to others. That uh, don't tell me you're a warrior. Because you do martial arts, that doesn't make you a warrior. Then you know, if you, you, I don't care how good you shoot, that doesn't make you a warrior. Yeah. A warrior is someone who actually sacrifices and gives of themselves daily yeah. for the nation, for his community, for his family. That's being a warrior. Yeah. Okay. Someone who perseveres, and I think that's the message of blood sport too. I think that's one of the reasons why it's such success because it's a simple story. Yeah. Yeah. You know, about honoring an instructor. Yeah. But honoring, you know, you know, the sport and, and fighting on for his friend and defeat, you know, is where there's cheating going, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, it's pretty hard to beat blood sports. Classic. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I would love to do a film, especially some of the other exploits in my life. My gosh, yeah. so much I could tell. Yeah. yeah. That would be amazing. I'm very, very privileged. You know, I've got to know some great men in my life, brave men, rub shoulders with them, you know. Yeah. Mm. And, uh, and some of them are like now the national security directors of their countries, you know. Yeah, right. Jeez, actually, it might need so, to be a TV show rather than a movie now because it's, it's too many stories. <laughs> true. It's a good idea. I actually, uh, the guy who did uh, Royal Pains actually wanted to do a TV series with me, but they never... When you're with it. All uh, right. But, but, but they had actually signed a contract with me to kind of explore that one time. Yeah, it could happen. So, Fingers crossed. That would be cool. <laughs> well, talk to somebody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll keep you in the loop. We'll, you never f- know. we'll find out. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. 
Cool. All right. Well, we might, we might wrap it up there. Um, thanks so much for the time. It's been Absolutely. an absolute delight chatting with you. Yeah. Um, very, very fortunate to have, um, to have had this experience with you, Frank. So thanks for being so generous with your time. Yeah. It's my pleasure. Please give my best to Michael Chavella. Will great do. gentleman. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, he's, he's fantastic. Done, I don't think anybody's done more for MMA than this guy. Yeah. 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 He's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So. Definitely give him my best. Yeah, we'll yeah, do. We'll and do. Um, look, when you do make it down to Australia, let us know and we'll catch up. Yeah. We'll, we'll, ta- we'll take you out for a beer. I'll come. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll work something out. Yeah. Cool, cool. Terrific. All right. All right. Thank um, you. Thanks so much and you have a great Christmas. Yeah, have a great Christmas. You too, guys. Thanks so much. <laughs> take care. See ya. Take care.